You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 1st of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up after a week-long pause, fighting resumes between Israel and Hamas. We ask what happens now. Also ahead. The road we have been on will not get us to our destination in time. There's lots of climate talk, but is there no walk? We'll hear about what happened on day one of COP28. Also coming up, the EU announces new provisions to protect freedom of speech and a look ahead at the latest film releases with Karen Krasanovich's Guide to the Christmas Blockbusters. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at some other headlines. A search and rescue operation is underway after a US special operations aircraft crashed off the shore of Japan's Yakushima Island. 11 US House lawmakers have asked the Biden administration to investigate a Chinese drone maker, Autel Robotics, claiming it poses a direct threat to US national security. And the photographer Elliot Erwitt has died aged 95. Erwitt was famous for capturing a standoff in 1959 between the then US Vice President Richard Nixon and the Soviet Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev and photo- photo- photographing Jacqueline Kennedy at her husband's funeral. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, after seven days pause, heavy fighting has now resumed between Israel and Hamas. Israel's military says it's resumed combat operations against Hamas after claims that Hamas had violated the temporary truce by firing towards Israeli territory. It follows a week of remarkable scenes in which dozens of families have been reunited with hostages held by Hamas and prisoners held in Israeli jails also being released. Well, to bring us up to date, I'm joined now by Daniela Pellet, the Managing Editor of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting. A very good morning to you, Daniela. Good morning. So just explain to us what happened overnight, because a little more than eight hours ago, there was still a glimmer of hope, wasn't there? Well, this the truce has been extended um, several times with parameters very clear. More uh, Israeli hostages released, more Palestinian prisoners released, and a, a further period of calm. So over the last week, 80 Israeli uh, hostages have been released, overwhelmingly uh, women and and children, and and 240 Palestinian prisoners. Um, It it has held remarkably well. Uh, Israel is now saying that Hamas violated the terms. At the same time, both sides are saying they're ready to resume um, uh, open conflict. So... um, it looks now very much like we are heading to um, the next phase of this particular war. Well, what does that look like now? I mean, well, before we examine that, just tell us what went wrong exactly with this this pause, because 
the the scenes repeated day after day of families being reunited, Israeli hostages taken out of Gaza and, and taken back to their loved ones, and also Palestinian prisoners coming out and being re- reunited with their loved ones as well, had become a very powerful narrative and it had become almost irresistible, hadn't it? So there is clearly enough of a risk that, the, that both sides are prepared to take that they are now content to dispel with that narrative. Well, it was only going to be a temporary pause. There was never any idea that it would be um, a ceasefire. Um, Hamas has been very clear from day one that it would release all of the hostages for all of the prisoners. That's all of the prisoners held in is, is all the Palestinian prisoners held in Israeli jails, which is clearly not going to happen. Um, Israel within Israel, the the issue of uh, the hostages is incredibly, incredibly emotive. Um, Netanyahu has been under a huge amount of of pressure. Um, but then the idea was that all the women and children will be, re- uh, is, the Israeli women and children would be released. Now, Hamas has fallen short of, of that, but there was never going to be a huge, huge um, hostage release because you get into the realms of um, the soldiers, which Hamas are very unlikely to release for relatively, I mean, it sounds a brutal thing to say, but the Palestinian um, prisoners that have been released so far have been fairly low level. They've been you know, people that administer detention, lots of uh, uh, lots of children accused of stabbing or throwing stones. Uh, so th- this exchange was was always going to be limited. It does not close the door on a further pause at all, which is highly likely. But now, as I said, it's 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 back to full combat operations. And Israel has said that it will be absolutely full combat operations, and that there is the the, the thought that the fighting will now move further south in Gaza, which is already packed full of thousands of people who'd fled the bombing in the north. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the UN is, is warning of, of a million refugees, is warning of a, of, of a looming uh, a humanitarian crisis, upon a humanitarian crisis. The weather is getting colder, conditions are, are pretty awful. Other warnings that disease could kill even more people. Um, so the situation is 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 dire. And, and Israel has not offered uh, any particular direction as to what might happen next, or even what might happen in terms of, of the population of uh, of Gaza. It's very clear that Hamas bears responsibility for holding citizens as uh, as human shields. There are ideas that it that the, the population could move to supposed unilateral safe zones that it's marked out in the south. But not only are there no facilities for a mass movement of people there, but also the there is very little faith uh, on the ground that Israel will not strike those areas as, as well. Tell us a little bit more about the international community now, because we we had extensive, exhausting efforts made in Qatar um, with the Qataris, with the Egyptians, with, huge, with, with several players from the region trying to keep a lid on things. What does this now mean for their efforts? Oh, those efforts will will continue. I mean, that's a, you know that's a, a parallel parallel process. The issue with this war, as with so many other modern wars, with perhaps this one, you know, defining what victory looks like to either side is is almost impossible. I mean, Hamas will win by surviving this onslaught. Uh, Israel says that it wants to completely uh, destroy Hamas, which seems yeah, highly implausible as a, as a military objective. I mean, by Israel's own um, estimation, there are about 30,000 Hamas operatives in Gaza. And Israel's own figures uh, indicate they've 
killed between one and 3,000. I mean, that's in nearly two months of war with uh, a devastating uh, human impact. So I don't, it can't, uh, it makes no sense for anyone, not even a military expert, to see that this just continues until those 30,000 operatives are killed. I mean, at some point there will need to be another pause. And at some point, there will be a, need to be a longer uh, term truce. But we are we are very, very far, far away from that yet at the moment. Is there any sense, though, that Israel will not do what it did in the north? I mean, we saw um, the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, in the region yesterday warning Israel that it cannot repeat what it did in the north. And the language from um, Israel's international allies, specifically the US, is, is getting stronger, that's for sure, incrementally. Um, but still, Israel is being urged to uh, act according to international law. It hasn't, apart from some um, outliers in the international community and suppose, you know, its, its allies in Europe, they have not accused it of, uh, of, of contravening international law. So the diplomatic language is still quite delicate. But I, I think absolutely, I mean, the fact that, that you have such senior visits to uh, to Jerusalem really speaks loudly about the fear of, of what will happen next. And America's, um, one of America's major concerns so far is to prevent a wider regional escalation. I mean, if you can consider it a success, things that have not happened, which no one will give anyone credit for, there hasn't been uh, a second front opened up um, with Hezbollah in the north. So that continues to be something of a small achievement amid this uh, th this awful chaos. And uh, that, that remains one of uh, America's you know, major aims. Uh, it, it's having an, a, a political impact on countries and allies of Israel uh, around the world as well. We're not quite in an American uh, election season yet, but this is, this is going to be part of, the, um, uh, part of the, the issues at play as we, as we move forward for, uh, to the next phase of the war. Indeed, because this, this fear of escalation in, area, in different parts of the, the region and further afield um, has been widely reported, hasn't it? Because we've seen in the last seven weeks Iranian-backed militants launching, launching, I think it's more than 70 rocket and drone attacks on US troops in Iraq and Syria, uh, the Pentagon's responding with rounds of airstrikes. There is this... Dreadful fear, isn't it, that this will will continue to trigger something? Those those events happened in the last couple of weeks. Is there a sense that actually there is no desire for escalation here, or or could this still be a tinderbox? Well, the, the, you know, the, the the general assessment on October the sixth six is that Hamas had no desire for imminent escalation. That the situation was stabilised. I mean, there's been reports now that Israeli military intelligence uh, was aware of quite detailed plans uh, of, of uh, Hamas's um, assault on October 7th, but dismissed it as being just merely aspirational. So this is what intelligence uh, organizations do. They collect intelligence, they assess it, they say, well, there's no appetite for an escalation now. The threat is as, as real as it, as it ever, as it ever was. Um, there's also the threat of horrible to say, but more minor escalations as well. The West Bank is a tinderbox. Uh, hundreds of Palestinians have been killed uh, in violence there. Uh, the extremist settlers uh, are being armed and being allowed to uh, have free reign. And also yesterday we saw uh, an attack, a shooting attack in Jerusalem, which killed three civilians, which was also claimed by Hamas. So um, the danger remains, you know, absolutely as 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 high as before, and the situation remains just as febrile. And finally, 
what remains or what what lies in store for those people who are in Gaza now in the south, having been told that Israel will move its attack further south, heading into the winter? I mean, what can the rest of the world do to ensure that those people are protected as much as possible? Well, the, the issue is as much as possible. I mean, how do you protect people who've been displaced? And these are from um, historically refugee populations, many of whom were displaced by the creation of Israel in 1948. How do you protect people who've been hugely, hugely traumatised by, 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 by um, awful scenes? Many have, have lost multiple family members, many uh, children. Uh, you know, the, the population of, of Gaza is, is incredibly young people that had nothing to do really with Hamas. How do you protect them psychologically or physically? I mean, the world is is failing um, is, is failing to answer this question because this isn't a humanitarian crisis as much as a political um, and historical crisis. Daniela Paled, thank you so much as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. It's uh, just nudging 11.13 in Dubai, 7.13 here in London. Now, the opening session of the UN COP28 Climate Summit did its best to grab the headlines yesterday, with the United Nations Climate Chief warning that unless governments trigger the end of the fossil fuel era, humanity will bring about its own terminal decline. Well, how memorable these words will be is one thing, but in a significant boost to those feeling the effects of climate change already, COP28's host nation, the UAE, has launched a disaster fund. Well, to bring us up to date for the last 24 hours, I'm joined by Akshak Rati. He is a senior climate reporter for Bloomberg News and the author of the new book, Climate Capitalism. He's in Dubai at COP and I'm delighted to say he joins us now. Good morning, Akshak. Good morning. So just tell us, what was said on day one? Day one is typically the day when technical stuff happens. So there is supposed to be an agenda over the next two weeks that needs to be agreed upon. Usually even the agenda is a fight. This time it wasn't. We know what we're going to talk about for the next two weeks. And as you said, there's a loss and damage fund announced, which is a big deal because it is something that was agreed as something to be created at COP27, but it needed to be operationalized, to be set up so that it can uh, host money from developed countries, give money out to developing countries and figure out the process through which that would happen. So they've agreed to the rules. Um, they have committed about a half a billion dollars. That's not very much money. You know, Pakistan's floods in 2022 cost $30 billion for its economy. But the half a billion dollars will go long way to try and create this mechanisms through which it will work. The next step would be how would more billions come into that fund? Indeed. I mean, let's talk about this half a billion. Is, is, there, is there a reason why the figure is so comparatively low? Yes. So the World Bank is going to host the fund interim period, and it requires about $200 million to get it going, just to have the mechanism in place. So you needed at least that sum. And of course, you go out and ask lots of countries, and so some countries gave a little more money, and that's why you have half a billion dollars. It's not real money going to uh, make a huge impact. Maybe a small island nation could uh, benefit from it, but not a large economy. Um, and as a result, does that sort of diminish its impact immediately? I mean, you, the, the narrative has been, this is brilliant, finally, after a very, very long time of, of talking about this, we have this loss and damage fund. And yet when you do just lift just ever so slightly the lid on it. It doesn't seem to have the teeth that it needs. 
This can be said of almost anything you do on climate change. We are so far ahead, uh, so far behind what we need to be doing that any amount of work we do is always behind the main goal. But from a loss and damage perspective, until last year, before it was agreed upon in COP27, John Kerry, who's the state secretary, uh, former state secretary of the U.S. and the special climate envoy for the U.S., said there's no chance it's going to happen. And 15 months later, there's actually a fund with some money in it, with some mechanism, legal mechanism to put in place for compensating people with climate impacts. So it is a ton of progress for people who've been at COPs for the last 27 years. Uh, COPs are the progress is typically slow, but this is important news. It is important news, therefore, will enough countries pay into the fund, not just to get it going, but to keep it going? So this is where the pressure campaign will start. Now that the legal mechanism in place, which is really hard to uh, get in place, now you can go and have a fight to try and get more and more money into this fund. Uh, and that's going to become the sort of talking point at every COP going onwards, that is uh, rich, are rich countries doing the work that they had promised that they would to try and finance not just compensating for climate damages, but also for projects that would reduce emissions and also projects that would help uh, countries adapt to the warming that we've already seen. Tell us a little bit about the way that the UAE has been handling the last 24 hours. I mean, we have all the right words being said, and we have now this creation of this fund against, many would say, all odds. But the, the, the fact remains that the, the UAE does need to do something to mitigate against the, the damage done by the last few weeks of, of, of claims of, of, of you know, persistent involvement in fossil fuels. And in, indeed, I think, isn't the man running the show, um, the president, uh, Sultan al-Jaber, um, is still the CEO of a large oil company? Yeah, he very much is. And green groups have been pointing out to the conflict of interest of putting an oil CEO as the president of COP for the entire year. And of course, the revelations this week uh, where BBC and the Center for Climate Reporting found documents that said the CEO had used talking points uh, during COP meetings about his oil company, uh, which are strongly denied by the presidency, but those are certainly raising the, the, the prospect of the conflict of interest actually playing out. So all the COP uh, delegates that I've spoken to have said, this revelation makes it even more important that the UAE does what is required to try and move the ball on climate. So I think the test will be whether in the negotiated document in two weeks' time, there would be some language on phasing out fossil fuels, the very thing that is powering the economy of the UAE and has made it into a developed country almost, even though it's called a developing country. Um, and so will they agree and get 200 other countries to agree to phasing out fossil fuels. That's the real test. Akshat Rati on the line from COP28 in the UAE. Thank you so much for joining us on Monaco Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com.
continue now with today's newspapers with the journalist Ruth Michaels. And a very good morning, Ruth. Good morning. From where do you join us today? Is it usually, it's usually somewhere delight, delightfully warm. The reason I say that is we're all absolutely wrapped up to the nines here in London. <laughs> uh, Istanbul this morning is, I, have, I hate to disappoint you, a little bit cold. Oh, right. Okay. Dreadful news. Uh, I'm not entirely <laughs> sure how I'm going to cope with that. It's always nice to know that someone is surviving in the sun. Uh, okay, what, what um, papers have you spotted for us today? So let's start with a little bit of coverage coming out of Israel. This is um, about the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's visit, um, which just wrapped up um, just before we came on air. Um, AP mentioning that uh, during his visit, he, uh, in their words, stepped up calls for Israel to comply with international law and spare civilians as it wages war against Hamas in Gaza. Um, There is rather interesting coverage in the Times of Israel mentioning a meeting between Blinken and the Israeli war cabinet last night, where essentially he tried to tell the war cabinet that they do not have months and months with the operation in Gaza. Um, and essentially that uh, adding that Israel might nece- might not necessarily have international backing to continue fighting for that long or with the same intensity. Because this is now, um, these words now come in the context of the fact that in the last, what, two and a half hours, fighting has now resumed. So how much weight do these words carry? Well, that's a fair question. I mean, this is Blinken's third visit um, to to Israel, and he also went to Ramallah to meet with the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas. Um, I mean, I think it's a real question. It's worth asking whether, you know, whether his his words are being listened to, given that exactly as you say, right after he, um, right, right as he left, this fighting resumed. Um, I mean, we're certainly seeing a lot of coverage also about the kind of the tactics that are being used by the Israeli military in Gaza and why we have seen such an, a high civilian death toll. It's over 15,000 people since uh, the 7th of October dead in, in Gaza due to um, Israeli bombardments. And incredible reporting coming out of the um, Israeli outlet 972 um, in association with their um, with another outlet called Local Call, um, which basically talks about how this uh, in this round of fighting that the Israeli uh, the IDF's tactics um, targeting a different use of a targeting AI based targeting system, which is called the gospel built on artificial intelligence and that generates uh, automatically generates more targets that all of these things have contributed to um, what they're terming the extensive harm to civilian life in Gaza and this incredibly high civilian death toll that we've seen. Tell us a little bit more about how Blinken is viewed in in the Middle East now, given the fact that in, he was in situ when the fighting uh, was just about to begin, when the the any kind of negotiations to keep the peace had failed. I mean, admittedly, that was in Qatar. But to have the US Secretary of State in the region when things go wrong again, how does that play? I mean, I think that we need to be 
realistic about the fact that what has happened here has changed the perception of the United States and of the West across the Middle East. Um, and that there is a sense that Blinken's words, although we're seeing this coverage that says that he is, you know, trying to um, push back a little bit on, on what Israel might do in Gaza, what it could do, particularly in the south of the Gaza Strip, that there's not really a sense that he's being listened to by the Israelis. And that is overall making uh, his words and U.S. policy less credible across the region, because there's an idea that it's re they're really working in lockstep with Israel rather than pushing back in a significant way. I mean, Al Jazeera um, covers this and mentions that, you know, Blinken's message was in keeping with um, Biden's shifting rhetoric on the war, which in their words began as a full-throated embrace of Israel's response to the Hamas attacks, but gradually tempered as the number of Palestinian civilian casualties began to rise dramatically. So I just don't think that there's an impression that Blinken's presence is going to have um, you know, he can say the things that we've seen him saying, right, saying to the Israeli war cabinet. But is that going to make a difference in terms of tactics um, and in terms of what's being used? There's, I mean, I think major questions about that. Let's move to a story that's in the New York Times, um, which says that Israeli officials knew that Hamas had a battle plan for what ended up being the October the 7th terrorist attack, um, but decided that it was too aspirational and too tough for Hamas to do. Yeah, absolutely incredible reporting uh, mentioned in the New York Times here. I mean, that essentially that there was a 40 or approximately 40 page document um, that the Israeli authorities codenamed Jericho Wall, which was a point by point outline of exactly the kind of attack that um, occurred on the 7th of October that killed over 1,200 people. Um, and that this was circulated among um, parts of the Israeli military, intelligence leaders, um, in the words of the New York Times. And they said that essentially internal experts determined that attack of that scale and ambition was beyond Hamas's capabilities, even after um, there was an, they give an example of um, someone within who's an uh, intelligence analyst um, within the Israeli Signals Intelligence Agency said that they had seen Hamas conducting these training exercises going on for a day that enacted what was outlined in the blueprint. But there was someone, uh, one of their higher ups, who brushed off the concerns of this person um, and basically saying that, you know, the, the scenario that's been outlined is imaginary. Um, and she later said um, that, at, you know, she completely refuted that. The fact remains that I think lots of, you heard a lot of um, warnings, or not warnings, but assessment of the of the Hamas attacks on October the 7th, which was it took everybody surprise, by surprise, not least Hamas, who, who perhaps underestimated just how easy it would be to get into Israel. But how does this now play out in Israel when you have the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu with, who is on a personal struggle to try and reassure Israel that he can, that he can keep his citizens safe? Very much. I mean, I think that this is a matter of, you know, his political legacy, his political career. Um, there is this sense of this looming investigation that's mentioned in this New York Times reporting that, you know, when 
the fighting is finished, that there will be a full commission of inquiry as to how this was allowed to happen. And one of the major components of that is why were warnings like this ignored? And there is to some degree a, a gender element to this. They mentioned that the intelligence analyst, that um, a veteran intelligence analyst, in the words of the New York Times, was warning in July um, about these trainings and that we've certainly seen a lot of reporting that um, female in uh, scopers who were based on the border with Gaza saw what they termed unusual activity, warned their superiors and were ignored. And so I think that there are real concerns about, um, you know, why these warnings were ignored and, and what that means politically, that, you know, we've seen also reporting that Hamas took advantage of some of the political divisions in Israel to t on the basis of the timing of the attack. And so all of these things are, you know, likely to come up in this inquiry that we know is coming at some point in the near future. And so does Benjamin Netanyahu. Let's move on to the story that Russia uh, yesterday labelled a global movement for gay rights to be an extremist organisation, including a total ban on any kind of public support. Possibly an, an unsurprising move by Russia, but the fact remains is that there is no such thing as, an, as a coherent, organised, single global movement for gay rights, is there? Absolutely. I mean, that conception of it rather, yes, it's, it's, it's designed to make it sound as this sort of shadowy extremist organisation. Um, I mean, exactly as mentioned in some reporting in the Washington Post, you know, labelling the international LGBT public movement as an extremist organisation, even though exactly as you say, there's no organisational structure, leaders, membership, website or address. There's um, uh, an LGBTQ activist quoted in the post comparing this law and how kind of amorphous it is that the um, what they call legal obscurantism um, used by Vladimir Putin's regime, which is designed to sow confusion and fear about how to avoid arrest, and potentially prison, that this activist basically compares it to the absurding, absurdist writings of Kafka. Absurd on one side, but on the same side, it does point to a continued direction of Russia's crackdown on anybody who doesn't look exactly how they want them to be. Well, absolutely. I mean, this is also part of a, basically a decade long crackdown in Russia on, on gay rights. There's mention in uh, the FT, for example, that this is talking about, um, you know, that this means that the global gay rights movement as an, ex an allegedly extremist organization is put legally on a par with Al-Qaeda or ISIS, um, and that some of the other groups that have also been added to uh, the extremist list would be the anti-corruption movement headed by Alexei Navalny, um, the US internet company Meta, and the Jehovah's Witnesses. So, I mean, it's both confusing and also terrifying for the people affected. Um, Ruth, let's move on uh, to another story, an astonishing one about George Santos, uh, on the verge of losing his congressional seat, um, but not going down quietly. Just explain the context for us, if you wouldn't mind. Um, yes. So incredible piece in uh, New York Magazine mentioning um, all of the uh, lies, essentially, that congressional investigators um, found uh, in an investigation into George Santos, which is why he now risks um, 
in a vote uh, today, being, uh, losing his losing his seat in what would be historic. Just some of the lies. It's just absolutely incredible list. So uh, lied about founding an animal charity, swindled a disabled vet whose dog was dying, um, lied about where he went to high school and college, lied about working for Goldman Sachs, um, accused of committing identity fraud and credit card theft, things I hadn't even remembered being reported because it's such an incredibly long list. Um, and then in a press conference yesterday, George Santos um, essentially um, saying that, you know, this report was littered with hyperbole and opinion and that no decent cop would bring this to a prosecutor and then managing to create an incredible fresh viral moment that um, apparently as he was talking, this is according to Huffington Post, um, that as he was speaking, um, that a, uh, a, a rubbish truck, a garbage truck, slowly crossed behind him, so obscuring the view between him and the backdrop. Ruth Michelson, thank you so much as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. That was Ruth Michelson on the line from Istanbul with today's paper review. The time here in London is 7.32. You're listening to The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A quick look now at today's other news headlines. Search and rescue operation is underway after a US special operations aircraft crashed off the shore of Japan's Yakushima Island. The aircraft, an Air Force CV-22B Osprey, was carrying eight airmen during what it said was a routine training mission. Eleven US House lawmakers have asked the Biden administration to investigate a Chinese drone maker over concerns over national security. A letter signed by both Democrats and Republicans calls for inquiry and impossible sanctions against Autel Robotics. The letter says the company is openly affiliated with the China's People Liberation Army and poses a direct threat to US national security. China and Vietnam are reportedly exploring an upgrade to their underdeveloped rail links. The improved line would pass through a region where Vietnam has its largest deposits of rare earths, of which China is by far the world's biggest refiner. China is also Vietnam's largest trading partner. And the photographer Elliot Erwitt has died aged 95. Erwitt moved from France to the US as a child, capturing major moments including a standoff in 1959 between the US Vice President Richard Nixon and the Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev. Erwitt was also known for photographing Jacqueline Kennedy at her husband's funeral. And those are the headlines. here in London. Now, prepare to hear more in the future about the expression SLAP. S-L-A-P-P. It's an acronym which stands for Strategic Lawsuits Against Public Participation. It's a technique used most frequently by large organisations or companies to target individuals such as journalists or activists. Well, now the European Union has come up with an agreed legal approach to handle such cases, let's hear what an EU spokesperson had to say about it yesterday. Democracy cannot work without a free and independent media. This is why the Commission welcomes the political agreement reached by the European Parliament and the Council early this morning at 2.30 a.m. on the new EU rules to protect those targeted with strategic lawsuits against public participation, or as we call them, slaps. Well, joining me now, Steve Crawshaw, former director of Human Rights Watch UK and author of a forthcoming book on international justice. A very good morning. Welcome back, Steve. Good morning. Good to have you with us on the programme. Just explain to us, um, I mean, you, one does one's best to try and outline what slaps are, but could you just recap exactly what, it, what a slap is? 
Yes, I mean, in a sense, as you say, it's something which we've been more aware of in, in the last few years. There have been a couple of high-profile cases. In a way, this is what we've seen for a long time, is libel cases, the libel laws used to, um, to suffocate debate. It goes broader than libel. But what you've got is companies or individuals with very, very deep pockets who will throw threats at those who are trying to uh, cast light onto, onto potentially murky issues and use that to initiate court cases which have in themselves no merit and perhaps will be thrown out by a court at the end of the day. But the amount of effort and energy and above all money that is thrown into that fundamentally suffocates the debate that's happening. So and we've seen that um, it, 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 London has been an absolute centre, obviously now not part of the European Union, so not affected by this latest um, legislation, um, but we're seeing this across the board. So give me an example. You said there have been a couple of cases. Are these um, court cases or, or, or lawsuits which um, are, are, are issued post-publication of a word? Or is this something almost akin to an injunction which prevents the expression of, of an opinion or a statement? Yeah, exactly. It can be both. Um, so uh, a couple of um, notable cases in uh, Britain in the last couple of years have been with two uh, well-known journalists, Tom, both from the Financial Times, in fact, at that time. Tom Burgess, now of The Guardian, then of the Financial Times, and... Um, uh, Catherine Belton um, from the Financial Times also. Her, Catherine Belton's book was on Russia and Putin and oligarchs and Tom Burgess was also a little bit post-Soviet connected. There was a lot of stuff there, but with uh, powerful figures from a multinational in Kazakhstan. Those arrived, there was demand for sources, for example, um, and a legal case that was thrown up on that. But above all, it was post-publication and saying, these all are terrible things that are being alleged. The judge was deeply, deeply sceptical in the Tom Burgess case, um, but it did take up huge effort and I think great, great stress as well. So, for example, there, the claim was that a a holding company, something that has no legal status as a person, obviously, at all, it's a kind of financial device, in a sense, uh, was they said, oh, you said that the holding company killed these people. He said, I never said that at all. And the judge threw this out saying, what are you actually suggesting here? He made some kind of complicated comparisons. So what you had there was, on the one hand, you had the case itself, which was trying to suffocate debate. I say he, they both walked out with, with, quote, victory. But the victory simply meant that they were back to square one, as it were. The knock-on effect is that people will look and go, that's going to be really troubling. Perhaps we shouldn't write about that individual or that company because it's only going to be trouble. And the European legislation has been very heavily influenced by the, the brilliant proactive work of the uh, the family of Daphne Caruana Galizia, the Maltese journalist who was assassinated in such horrific circumstances a few years ago. She had dozens of these um, cases of, of vexatious legislation against her. So explain to us a little bit, I mean, we, you've talked about a couple of cases which lie outside the European Union's jurisdiction, the United Kingdom in point. But when it comes to this new framework what what will it do i mean what what protection will it offer to the likes of you or me or any campaigner out there who wishes to make a statement or, or uncover some news 
So the idea is, um, and there is some parallel legislation in the UK which has been happening, which is which is trying to do the same thing. It is interesting that, unsurprisingly, all of this has significant cross-party support. There is no mainstream party that doesn't go, this kind of isn't a good thing. But to answer your question directly, I suppose you could say it's trying to suffocate the suffocators. So those who are coming in trying to smother that debate, and I say throwing unbelievable amounts of money like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of um sorry of millions uh, can be thrown at these things um and the idea is to make it more difficult to do that which is a very laudable aim and that's been praised all around the glitchy bit comes where actually people look at the detail and say yes but this isn't going to stop enough. So in the case of the UK, um, it's specifically only on corruption things, which doesn't, wouldn't, for example, have covered the, the Tom Burgess case, which was to do with deaths. Um, and in the case of the European legislation, which I think people are still looking at the detail, but there is a concern that it might not actually scoop up enough in the net uh, to uh, to prevent those things happening. So, for example, the, the, one of those working with the Daphne Garawana Galicia Foundation um, has suggested that 90% of those existing ones wouldn't get scooped up. But it is, it must be said, these aren't difficult issues because as with libel, ordin, quote unquote, ordinary libel cases, or as with libel cases historically, courts will spend a long time deciding was this vexatious or was this not or was this justified or was this not and so that's what legislators are having to do is how to create a kind of normality which permits uh free debate in a really important way um at the same time as still leaving the door open for if a genuine libel has happened that still should be able to be litigated so those are complicated issues i think it's going to remain very controversial i think many people most closely involved with this um and i'm the trustee of a couple of organizations who've indirectly um had this been happening i think the the fear is that if you've got enough money and if you've got far more money than the investigators, let alone the courts and the judges who are trying to assess things in difficult circumstances, if you throw enough money, you can create that chilling effect. It doesn't actually make any difference what happens in court. There will still be the chilling effect. And I think the fear is that that will still continue for a while to come. Finally, Steve, just looking at the wider perspective here from what the Europeans more European Union's more general approach must be, it is a it is a group of nations which is currently having to wrestle with the likes of Viktor Orban in in, in Hungary. There has been political change and in, and political change in, is coming in Poland, but that sense of certain governments and certain organisations feeling free to clamp down on. Um, freedom of speech. Admittedly, trying to get something through a court takes a very, very long time and companies and often governments can be more nimble when it comes to reacting to what they believe is something that will hurt them. But do you think this this is a statement or a move by the European Union just to send a warning shot across the bows of anybody who believes that they can uh, stifle comment? I think that it is. I think the intentions are good. And I say, although there are some critics, I think it's acknowledged that the fact of wanting to do it is a way of saying 
if you like, in the broadest sense, the rule of law does matter. We can't be in a place where things can just be hijacked. As you say, within the European Union, um, hugely welcome is that change is coming in Poland. And it was really worrying where it looked as though there was a general move the other direction. We have, of course, seen other elections which have gone in the other direction. So I think you're right. I think that there is a desire from Brussels to say the rule of law does really matter. Sometimes it's felt that the European Union has not had the the clause has not been able to force through its defense in the way that perhaps many would would like that to happen where where it has been under threat so i think this is a very very important signal um and with luck perhaps these things can continue to be refined to make sure that at last those who currently feel they really hold all the cards in other words those who have all the money and can do anything will feel a little bit less empowered in, in, in the years to come. Steve Crawshaw, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. Still to come on today's programme, which film will win us this Christmas? Ladies and gentlemen, greetings to you all. My name is Willy Wonka. You see, I'm something of a magician. Prepare to be amazed. I'll be joined by Karen Krasanovich to go through the Christmas blockbusters a little later on The Globalist. It's time now for the final instalment of our series going through our annual soft power survey which features the countries that have mastered the subtler art of global influence and diplomacy. Yesterday we revealed France had taken the number one spot in this year's ranking so we thought that today we'd bring you a profile of a country which has entered our survey for the first time, New Zealand. Monocle's contributing editor Andrew Muller tells us more. And so today I'm announcing that I will not be seeking re-election and that my term as Prime Minister will conclude no later than the 7th of February. Prior to Jacinda Ardern, no Prime Minister of New Zealand had been an internationally recognised figure. Her immediate successor, Chris Hipkins, barely had time to become a household name in his own country before losing an election to Christopher Luxon in October. The new incumbent is unlikely to follow Arden onto the cover of Vogue, though that is far from a measure of competent governance. It is certainly the case that by the end of her tenure, Arden was more popular abroad than at home. She was nevertheless a considerable soft power asset. The acts that follow her onto the global stage will struggle to attract nearly as much spotlight. Though New Zealand has a great deal to fall back on, it is difficult to estimate its soft power footprint. People correctly think well of the country when they think of it, but that isn't usually very often. Tourism numbers are still 16% down on the last pre-pandemic year, probably as a consequence of recent hikes in airfares. In October, New Zealand launched a new advertising campaign starring filmmaker Taika Waititi, showcasing the country's glorious landscapes and its bone-dry sense of humour, which are two of the best reasons for visiting. Here I am, Taika Waititi, taking in the epic view of the mountains. That view's epic. Epic. Ah, the salty smell of the sea. 
New Zealand is a quietly determined pioneer of environmental initiatives. In 2023, it became the first country to ban plastic supermarket bags, extending an earlier prohibition to include even the thinnest such receptacles and proposed attacks on the greenhouse gas emissions of farm animals. Disaster for New Zealand. The country missed out on a keenly hoped-for soft power triumph when its best-known international brand, the men's rugby union team, the All Blacks, fell short of victory in the Rugby World Cup. But it's over! It's over! But this mattered rather more to New Zealand than it did to anybody else. Hundreds of millions of viewers were nevertheless entranced and intrigued by the pre-match haka. Monocle comment. Good. Successors to former Foreign Minister Nanaya Mahuta should continue the country's emphasis on Maori values in diplomacy, especially in the Pacific. Bad. Christopher Luxon's coalition seems to be positioning itself as anti-woke culture warriors. New Zealand's reputation as affable and reasonable should not be lightly discarded. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Miller. Thank you, Andrew. And you can pick up the December-January issue of Monocle magazine right now, available in all good newsstands, or order your copy at monocle.com. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. It's time for a roundup of the latest news on the big screen. Film critic Karen Krasanovich joins me, open arms, stretch, ready to go. She's yes. warming. She's warming up, ladies and gentlemen. She's literally limbering up for the session. How goes it, Karen? Yeah, I can touch my toes, so we're, we're ready. Okay, uh, well, that makes one of us in the room. I can't do. I've done that. Since. I've never been able to do that. Um, right. Okay. Let's talk about the movies. Um, what are the big headlines? I mean, we we must talk about Christmas stuff in a minute. Yes. Um, and major major films being released. But yes. but what else from the world of cinema? Well, I think what's interesting is that Sony Pictures Ent- Entertainment (SPE) and the Guardian Media Group—that's not just the Guardian, but it's the group—have uh, agreed to first right uh, first look rights to all of the the Guardian's stories, including archive so material. What, so what does that mean? They can go through and try and find a good story and turn it into a movie? Exactly, because SPE has companies in it like uh, the ones that do The Crown, His Dark Materials, Sex Education, and also they have a film division like um, TriStar and Screen Gems. So what's going to happen? This is, this is 
I've, I've been I've been seeing a lot of articles lately about the rise of documentaries and the rise of true true stories. And right now, you know, my mother always my mother would never let us have fiction in the house because she said real life has got enough true stories. Well, here we go. Sony Pictures and The Guardian are agreeing with my mother and deciding to develop 200 years of archive, like to delve into the 200 years of, of The Guardian's history uh, across articles, blogs, columns, videos, and podcasts to mine for good stories. And what will they do with these good stories? Because then, do, do they then have to go and ask permission or whoever it is to try and do the story? Or is this just, okay, we've read the story, now off we go? I, I, it looks like there's a rights deal to me. I mean, it's difficult. I haven't seen the fine print, but um, the Guardian Group has already um, had a best documentary short in 2021 uh, with Colette, and they were nominated for another in 2019. So, you know, this isn't their first rodeo. They know what they're doing. And I think the, the combination of the platform and the material is going to be very interesting. So I'm pretty sure that there is rights clear. It's not going to be a problem with rights there. And what kind of... Um picture what kind of entertainment company will this then make sony i mean where, where will this position it in terms of all the other huge giants i think it gives it um i, I think a, a lead really um i don't know of any other agreements that are like this with any other platforms and, and companies uh there might be but because this is so expansive and so so extensive, I mean, uh, into the past, I think it could mean. Well, okay, let's look at let's look at what we're what we like to watch. I mean, for example, Hustlers, the 2019 film, The Bling Ring, Dog Day Afternoon from 1975, Argo. All of these, also the Mister Rogers movie, were all based on news, newspaper articles. So you know, this is just an, an just a gesture of what's going to be coming. So in the next ten to twenty years, we will see history on our screens in in cinematic form. Well, and hopefully it'll make people want to delve into the real story. Okay, um, let's talk about Christmas. We have to. It's the first of December. <laughs> Strap yourselves in. Here we go. Uh, we've been going to watch some films together, Karen Kazanovich, you yes. and I, and it's yeah. been super fun. We saw Wonka last night. We can't talk about it. No. Um, until next week when we are allowed to talk about it. We've also seen uh, The Colour Purple. We have. Are we allowed to talk about that yet? I think we can. I don't know. No, I think we can. Anyway, these are big names, big titles being re not reworked, uh, no. turned into musical form in both cases. Which <laughs> you love musicals. I love. I can't tell you how much I love musicals. Um Thanks. Uh, but these are obviously cinema um, picture houses trying to push with big names for Christmas. There, is there a sense that there is a, a decent Christmas offering this year? Well, it depends on what you think is decent. I mean, if you want to watch something with your children, then that's um, that's one thing. And it's I Wonka. Think Wonka is designed that way. I mean, Color Purple is a is a very popular, well known. I mean, you know the, the literary source better than I do. But um, Christmas is always about the big guns, and this is where they're going to put their marketing budget and also the big budget films. And what's interesting to me is that Killers of the Flower Moon and Napoleon are in the in the Thanksgiving market. They're not competing in this same sort of spangly, snowbound kind of, let's see who's going to hit biggest. And I w- I've been watching Candy Cane Lane with Eddie Murphy, which is another one. And of course... You're you, an Eddie Murphy fan. Uh, well, I, I do like Eddie Murphy. Um, and, and that's... Uh, She's rummaging sorry. in her handbag, I'm sorry, ladies and I'm sorry, gentlemen. But it's so cold. I thought she was actually going to retrieve Eddie Murphy from her handbag. And Eddie Murphy's right here, but he's not allowed to speak. Uh, <laughs> And I, I think that, that 
it's it's comedy. I mean, think think about the the magical Christmas movies that that you like that you watch. Maybe like I watch Scrooged. I watch It's a Wonderful Life. You know, I even watch Violent Night. That's my new favorite. <laughs> Violent from last Night. Year. Yes, it's where where Santa becomes a, a, a vengeful gunman. I think, but um, it's quite fun. I'm sure it is. <laughs> There's so many great Christmas movies, and I think this year we've got some new classics coming out. For example, we've got Alexander Payne's The Holdovers, which, like Die Hard, is set (laughs) at the Christmas period. Can't wait. Karen Krasanovich, thank you so much for bringing the first of the Christmas cinema spirit to Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. Now, the annual Art Review Power 100 list is out, a celebration of the world's most influential figures. This year, the artist and activist Nan Goldin tops the list of those shaping the creative world. To tell us more, I'm joined by Mark Rappold, Editor-in-Chief of Art Review. Good morning. Morning. Thanks for having me. Um, Good to have you on the programme. Just recap, what is the Power List 100? So the Power 100 uh, is published by Art Review magazine, and it's been uh, going since 2002. Um, it's basically a list of the people who are influencing the kind of art that gets made visible to the public, uh, the kind of art that's being produced um, and the ways in which it's shown. Um, and this year you've chosen Nan Golden. Uh, why was that? I mean, just explain to, to, to anyone who doesn't know who she is. I mean, activism is something which is absolutely stitched hard into everything that she does and started as an active, uh, started as an artist, became an activist and, is, and now everything is sort of becomes one. Tell us a little bit more about her and why you thought that she this year is, is the one to top the list. So I think... Um... As you mentioned, Nan Golding's an American photographer, and she's been active for the past several decades. Her work itself has, for all that time, dealt with uh, people and communities that are made to feel powerless. So her work has tackled um, confessional autobiography, queer identity, intersectional feminism, body autonomy, and corporate ethics, and a lot of the issues that are very much present now. in 2017, she founded uh, Pain, which was a kind of uh, campaign against um, the opioid crisis that ripped through America. She herself uh, was one of the people who became addicted to opioids. And the campaign was more precisely, um, I would say, a way to protect art as a space of freedom. Um, so the campaign was against the Sackler family. Um, who promoted and distributed the drug oxycotin through their corporation, Purdue Pharma, and sponsored a lot of art institutions. So their name was very much on the doorways, the gateways to art spaces. And she began the protest against the sort of ethics of this and partly against the Sackler family more generally. And they basically succeeded in having the name Sackler removed from a number of institutions such as Tate, the Metropolitan Museum in New York, the Louvre in France, and, you know, earlier this year, Oxford University. So her campaign spread much more uh, than through just the art world, but into the more general world as well. And I think it's very much about protecting public space from corporate uh, interference. Very briefly, though, the, the list that you have incorporates both the, the purely creative, the, the campaigners, but also it has quite a commercial sense to it. Yeah, it has a commercial sense in the sense that um, commercial art galleries are one of the venues that uh, show work and any kind of power in some ways is about visibility and commercial galleries 
give visibility by funding shows and institutions, but also in putting on shows of new works by artists. But equally on the list, there are anthropologists such as Anna Singh. Um, there are thinkers such as Bian Shul Han, who operate slightly outside what we would say the art world was conventionally, but contribute to the ideas that circulate in it. Mark Rappot, thank you so much for joining us live on The Globalist. And that's all the time we have for today's programme. The warmest of thanks to all my guests and thanks too to our producers, Vincent McAvinney, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Cece Armstrong. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Tamsin Howard with editing assistance from Steph Chungu. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday here in London. Hope you can join me for that if you can. And The Globalist returns at the same time on Monday. I'll be doing that too. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening and have a great weekend.